the chapter 5. The theme of elders and honoring them keeps coming up in the book of 1 Timothy. We said last hour, there's a problem in Ephesus. The apostle Paul has sent Timothy and told him multiple times in this letter already, you have to go correct these people. You have to go shut down these doctrines of demons, this asceticism, this denying marriage or, or food and saying you're holy if you don't get married or you're holy if you don't eat food, certain kinds of food. You have to shut this paganism down in Ephesus. And so he's, he's strengthening this young guy, this young man that he's been training and working with all these years. He's strengthening, strengthening him to go to Ephesus in a place where there's trouble and to address this trouble. And he's told him how to conduct yourself in the household of the living God. He's told the, uh, Timothy that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a sincere faith and a, a clear conscience. He's told uh, Timothy that, um, that it's going to be tough, but he needs to be a good soldier um, in the fight. He needs to fight the good fight. But now he's going to say there's a way to say it. There's a right approach to how you're going to deal with these especially elder people in the church. And we have in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the general approach of how we talk to each other. We saw first hour, we treat each other in the family of God like we're family. We treat each other like family. And I kind of joked with you a little bit. I said, and so you don't have to call me the word brother to treat me like a brother. In fact, in my family, we never called each other by our sibling identity. Brother David, would you please pass the salt? Yes, Sister Carrie. I'll sit. We never talk like that. But in churchianity, they do that some. And I'm just like, that's not how we are. That's not how family works in my family. We call each other familiarly by the first name. And we have special names for our elders because we don't call them by their first name. I don't call my mother Linda. I always called her mom. Always mom. And my dad was always dad. And, and, and so, after I was five or six anyway. And so, so but, but there was, there was the, it's family. This is why I have settled on Pastor Dave for the kids. You adults don't have to call me uh, any special name. I'm not the right reverend anything. Jesus Christ is our great shepherd and I'm a saint in the body of Christ, just like every one of you believers set apart to God. That's what saint means. Just set apart to God. All right. But, but I'm not their peer, the little kids. And I don't really think I'm Mr. Rosalind to them because this is a household of the faith. We're, we're familial. I'm kind of like, if you're a, a man and you have kids in this church and I'm your brother in Christ, understand I'm their brother at their believers too. But in terms of the family, if I'm your brother, then that makes me kind of like an uncle and you to my kids. That's kind of how it seems to work in the household. So I think something more avuncular like Pastor Dave than Mr. Rosalind, because I never called my uncle by his first name. I had an uncle, my dad's brother, Tim. I never called him uh, Tim. I called him Uncle Tim because that was the nature of our relationship. I'm from Texas. We respect our elders. At least we say we do. We call them sir and ma'am. We say yes, sir. And yes, ma'am. And no, sir. And no, ma'am. And we don't call our uncle by his first name. That's my dad's same age. We call him uncle, but I, didn't, but I never called him uncle Rosalind. Hey, uncle Rosalind. Now I've read Dickens and, and, and old, other cultures and times gone by. People would do that. They would call each other uncle and by the last name, but that would be silly. I might've done it if I thought of it because I am silly at times. But um, anyway, my point is that we're a household. The, the way the Bible presents the local church is its family. 
It's family, so we treat each other like family. And I don't mean we ignore each other and we're late for dinner and all that. I mean, I mean we're supposed to concern ourselves like family the way families love one another. And that's not agape love. That's phileo love. That's the family filial love that you have because you're in the same household. And the way you can get that successfully in a household, I hope all of you know, is through agape, through disregarding self and concerning yourself for the best of the other. But if you have enough time invested in a household that's doing this toward one another, you develop very easily some filial, some, some give and take love as a family because you have had so many good experiences. I think that family evangelism, if, you, if you'll pardon the expression of like coming around someone and letting them know that you care about them and you're there for them and you're glad to see them and, and you want them to be glad to see you, feeling belonging. I think a lot of um, bad things get advanced in our time through people using that method to get hold of people. I think a lot of bad things get advanced. Um, there is a cult down the street that will come out and do your roof. If you listen to their two people come by with their bicycle or whatever, every time there's a cult down the street, that'll get you through family belonging. Oh, I finally found some people that care about me and they're confused because they think that I'm feel loved equals I'm being told the truth. And so you can really hijack something that's divine, that's God-given in how we treat one another and use it for nefarious purposes. And uh, this happens and it's, it's called abuse. It happens all the time. But, but understand, I'm just showing you the power of, of the household, the power of being part of, of, a, of a household, of a family. And um, there's even, there have been cults called the family. Ever heard of that? See, there's all kinds of abuses of God's good things, but very clearly in the text here, we're told that we're supposed to treat each other like we belong to the same family. And what you do in a family is you respect your elders. You respect your parents because they brought you into this world. And if they had any idea what they were doing, they took care of you and they made sure that you made it to the age that you've arrived at. They gave you life and then they gave you sustainment for life and they cleaned you up and they washed you off and they, and they taught you and trained you. And if, again, if your parents didn't do that for you. They were supposed to break the cycle, do that for your kids. Right. But that's the design God gave us in parents. And he's the ultimate father, obviously, and he's really good at it. And so we're learning in God's economy to respect our elders and honor them because they're from God. And so in our passage here, Paul is teaching Timothy how the church family is supposed to treat one another. And as you go correct these older men, you speak to them as fathers, he says, without giving them a sharp rebuke. You come alongside them, you encourage them, you entreat them as you would talk to a father. You talk to older women as mother. You talk to as though as, as you would talk to a mother. You talk to your, your, the, the young men as brothers. You talk to the young women as sisters in purity. And so this is Paul establishing how the household relates. And then we talked about the way you treat widows who have no support. Widows indeed, in your English Bible, perhaps, I, tr I translate it, truly a widow in need. This is an economic category of a woman who does not have the ability to provide for herself. Her kids are not present, are not able to provide for her, they're, or they're, they've, they've already moved on. Or she doesn't have kids. And she has nothing, she has no one, she just has God. And we read in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, what this lady is like. She's been left alone. She's fixed her hope on God and continues to in entreaties and prayers night and day. These people are wards of the church. The women who have no support become supported by the church, says the apostle Paul. That's what it means to honor them. 
And then he says that there's, there's a certain way of life not to be that's very common. A woman who's a widow no longer has that, uh, that pressure or that presence of someone to whom she's accountable. Right? It's lonely, but it doesn't have to be totally lonely. Right? But what he says in verse 6, She who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead even while she lives. And this is where we were headed last hour. We have to honor our fathers and mothers according to God's design. And we have to provide for those in our church family who cannot provide for themselves. And that involves support. Where am I at? And I'm in verse... Verse 5. Now the truly needy widow... Even one who's been left completely alone, meaning she doesn't have earthly children to provide for her. She has fixed her hope upon God and abides in petitions and prayers night and day. Paul paints a picture of ladies, what you want to be like widowed or otherwise. You want to be a woman who fixes your hope on God and is given to prayer in the work. Now, in this case, it's a woman who is no longer providing much in the way of her own needs. As we get older, we lose the ability to do things. She can still pray. There's still work to do. And we said there's a great principle here of labor. In verse six, though, she who indulges in excess, although living has already died. So the husband died and now we're just going to live for pleasure. That's death. That's death. And the two principles came out of this. Widows who are unable to provide for themselves still have work to do. Widows who still who cannot provide for themselves still have work to do. That's, that's petitions and prayers day and night or night and day is the order he gives. We also said living for pleasure is death. And I think it's true for widows. It's true for young people. It's true for people on their video games. It's true for people with their sports team. It's true. If your life is pleasure, your life, your, it's death. You're missing life. And so I would expand that principle from what he says about the widows and they're, you know, well, I'm done. I just play. Well, that's, that's a living death. And we read about that in Romans chapter 8. By the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So your Christian life never ends until your life ends. And your Christian service never ends until your life ends. And this brings into the principle, the concept of the 20%, 80% I started to talk about. Do you know what I mean by 20%, 80%? 20% of the people do all the work and 80% of the people basically show up. That's the local church in a good, healthy local church in the United States. We could say 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I don't know about that, but I'm just saying the people that are really drawing near to God and really seeking to live the spiritual life, it's a usually a pretty small subset. And here's the thing. Are you doing the work? Because I've taken in the word, I'm taking in the word. Well, the word every turn tells you what God wants you to do. So I'm taking it in. Are we living it out? And this is not a guilt trip. It's not, I'm not contradicting the grace of God. This is the grace of God to you. He has what he wants you to do. And it's, it's a, it's a, a patent of nobility. It's a call to the greatest privilege imaginable. She could be about God's business. And we, we neglect it at our own detriment. God's going to get his mission accomplished, but he's asking you, his children, to throw in with him. He wants you. He's given you his Holy spirit to bear witness for him but we squander 
but we don't, we're not serious. And that's that 20%, 80% thing. And well, why not? We'll work. I mean, you know, I've got the kids got sports, all the things that we throw up as cultural excuses to say, I'm not really going to throw in with the mission. I think you should be doing sports clubs and work and whatever else you should be doing it as unto the Lord, as a representative of Jesus Christ, taking your, 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 your white robes of spiritual identity in with you as it were walking in the light as God is in the light among these people and bearing the reproach that you'll bear for those that hate God and want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Even as you start the conversation in that direction at times, yeah, you're going to be hated for it, but you should, you should do it. Well, I mean, if we do that, then I mean the, the sports team won't be as, as easy. It won't be as fun. Yeah. But somebody might get saved. You might snatch someone from the flames and what, what, what else are we doing here? Right? So what I'm saying is, uh, there's always the work and Paul's talking about the ladies that are in the work. They become a ward, if you will, of the church. They become somebody that the church supports because they don't have family to support them. Now, again, it's very important to notice children and grandchildren in verse four are responsible to care for their grandmothers and their mothers. They don't look, they don't saddle the church with that. You take care of that. But if there is no one, if there are no children, the church is the family in reserve. We're there. We're extended family. You see how that works? And so we take care of our own. That's the idea. All right. In verse six, uh, verse seven, Paul commands Timothy to command. I have to repent a little bit. I said last time I spoke on this last week, I said, I don't issue a lot of commands right here. The apostle Paul in the imperative mood tells Timothy to issue commands. You hear it? Paul is commanding Timothy to command the Ephesians that they take care of their parents. Present City Bible Church. And as much as I have any authority to say anything to you at all, take care of your parents. Provide for your grandparents, whatever they need. Oh, they're, they're got Medicare. They're in the, they're in the nursing home. They're, they're taken care of. Oh no, no, that's not their needs. Well, there, I mean, there's canned, they've got canned food. There's some, they're warming up the peas in the microwave for them. They're fine. They're, They're okay. Not if you're not watching, not if somebody's not there, not if you're not going to see them, not if you're not loving them, take care of your parents. I don't know how to issue commands without screaming at people. All right. (laughs) Command these things so that they may be above reproach. Ladies, when your husband dies and he will, and that's what happens most of the time. And this has been a problem since back in those days, the husband dies early. The wife has a break. That's the nature of the human experience is that husbands go, you know, three score and 10. My dad got exactly, almost exactly that. And then, and then, then you get the break, right? The aftermath. And I, I could ask God all day, why is it like this? Why do you do this? And I, I, I don't know, but I know that this is a very common experience. They're having an Ephesus in the first century, 2000 years ago. It's what we experience today. We have a lot more female widows than male widows, male widowers. And I believe that in first Corinthians seven, when Paul talks about the unmarried agamas and then the widows, the first one's a masculine word. I think that's a male widower and the widow is the female widow. 
when he talks about the unmarried, stay as I am. He's not talking about young people not getting married. In 1 Corinthians 7, in that part of that passage. But here, here's the thing. It's a common experience. We all know it. And just because there may be programs, just because someone may be looking in, doesn't mean that we're getting the care that we need. And so this is a life responsibility that we all have. And, and ladies, just because he's gone and you're on your own, doesn't mean your service is complete. It doesn't mean you're done serving the Lord. You'll serve the Lord all these years dealing with Mr. Nasty. And he was great, but there were hard times. We took the good with the bad. It was bitter and sweet. And now (sighs) I miss him, but there are things I don't miss. Right? There's a lot less laundry. It's not time to play. It's not time for wantonness. It's not time to live for pleasure. And we think about that with with respect to retirement. I think this principle goes through everything in life. Triple retired? Is that that the number (laughs) so far? So Mike Regal, I'm going to use you as a sermon illustration. Mike finishes with the Navy, goes and does a nuclear thing, gets a a sweet deal and retires there, comes back here, serves here with us. Thank you, Pam. And, uh, (laughs) and, And then he takes over with the Submarine Forces Museum Association. He did that forever. Uh, what is that? 12 years. Um, and then, and then he's retired again from that. And he's like, well, I don't, what am I going to do now? He's the executive director of Chafer Theological Seminary. That's his retirement, you know, thing. And so he went from paid things that retire with pay to like, to, to, to being, um, pro, uh, pro bono. I don't think you get a reimbursement for Chafer, right? Um, he's just, you're totally for the Lord. And, uh, we're not taking anything out of that eternal package by talking about it, I assume. But, um, but see, there's no, there's no retirement. What are you going to do when you retire? Well, I'm going to go play. You mean you're going to go fish for men? Are you going to be about God's work? You're going to be devoted to the prayer and, and day and night as the widows in the church. There's no, there's no retirement from what God has us doing. And, if you think about your life as, man, I'm really going to work hard and then I'm going to start playing at 65 or 70, you're going to miss out on the most effective years of God's service because you'll be the most mature. All right. Command these things so that these ladies in their devotion to God and their service to him will be above reproach and not conducting their lives like a non-believer. In verse eight, now let's talk about unbelievers. But if anyone for his own and especially those of his household does not take thought for provision. That's what it says. He does not think ahead for the provision of these in his, in, in his own household, the elderly. He has denied the faith. See, living with good worship toward God earlier in the verses is to take care of your parents. I think that's in verse four. If he doesn't provide for them, and it's, and it's a thought word, pro, uh, um, pro noe, to think ahead is really the origin of this word that means to provide for. But it's to think ahead, to concern yourself, to care for them. See, we've got our retirement plan, right? You've got your 401k, you're saving for retirement. Well, um, you also need to be thinking about the provision for those that have provided for you. This is God's design. And we talked about that in Matthew chapter 15 today. If you don't do this, you've denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. He, such a person, is worse than an unbeliever. Why? Because they know. Take care of mom and dad. So, it's a pretty good challenge 
for us to honor what God gave us. Understand the theology behind this. The theology behind this that goes from Genesis through Revelation is the divine institutions. These are authority structures that God has delegated to man. Authority structures like you, between you and God, have your responsibility that he laid on you to do his work. Responsible labor. Institution number one, you and God. You have your choices to make and you're supposed to make choices that he wants. That's the first one. The second one is marriage and authority structure with headship and bodyship. That is an authority structure. It is a governmental authority structure. Somebody in the marriage has the right, the, the requirement to make decisions. And somebody in the marriage has the requirement to assist. And that's God's design in Genesis chapter 2, echoed in Ephesians chapter 5. And everywhere marriage is addressed, Matthew 19. Headship and body. And I'm not saying, ladies, that you don't have a, a role in the decision making. I'm saying that you are the helpmeet for that man who is the head of that marriage. And if you don't like that, understand you're fighting with God. You're not fighting with me. And if you don't like that, you're opposed to your own good, to your own blessing, to your own flourishing, your own thriving, your own blessing in life, headship and marriage. It's a, it's a divine institution. And if we get that straight in Ephesians chapter five, it provides a household of God's love, self-sacrificial love of a husband like Christ with a responsive love from a wife who's submitting to her husband. And now we've got children in that and they're being nourished and elevated and reared in the love of God. That's divine institution number three is the family. God gave parents their children. He didn't give the state the children. He didn't give the local school system the children. He gave the parents the children. This is, if, if you really want to know where I am politically, this is my number one issue. I joke about it being the second amendment, but it's only because the second amendment helps me with my real number one. It's my kids. They're not anybody else's, but mine before God. Because apparently the principle in God's economy of creation and ownership is that if you make it, you own it. When God made everything, he's the owner of everything. And when he distributes what he distributes, it's his to distribute. That's why Marxism is so evil. Your problem with the distribution of the wealth is with God. And start storing up treasures in heaven, by the way, and stop worrying about the shekels here on earth. No, if you make it, it's yours. And well, in what sense do you own your children? Not for their destruction, not for anything, but for their protection and development, for their good, for their thriving. That's why you're their parents. Not to hurt them, obviously. To, to, to promote them and protect them. Divine institutions, civil government, Genesis chapter nine, verse six, God instituted civil government that God would have humans doing his work on earth with respect to other humans. And in Genesis nine, six, it's for murder. The murderer will be executed. Genesis nine, six, the beginning of all human government where God delegates to man the right to rule. These are the divine institutions of authority. You could argue about Genesis chapter 11 and the establishment of nations where God divided the languages and the cultures according to clans and tribes and language, where God set us apart into different nations. Not in terms of racism, we're one race, one human race, but he separated man into nations because we're broken. And when we band together, we fight him. We rebel against him. So he protected us from ourselves in Genesis chapter 11, in the Tower of Babel with the nations. I believe the local church is an institution of God of authority. It's a Christian institution, which has God delegated authority structures. We've heard about elders and deacons. So what? These are, this is God's way. 
And the way you honor him in all those institutions is pretty clear, clearly spelled out in the Bible. Parents, you need to protect, provide, and direct your children. Raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Parents, you need to not provoke them to anger, but to, but to bring them up to, to, to grow and thrive in the things of God. Let's take a tack from our talk on honoring our parents and our divine institutions. And let's look at a great instance, a great instance of a man that deserves our emulation and our honor. If you please turn to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14. My favorite recent humorous story about elderly versus young elderly man versus young man was a story of a man in a ball game back before the virus who heard a, a, a boy, a younger man, an 80 something year old man heard a younger man making fun of the elderly. I don't know the circumstance. Maybe he was making fun of him. And uh, he was talking about how the elderly don't understand how to do any of the new modern technology. They don't know how to, you know, put the phone number in their phone. They don't know how to turn it on silent for church. They don't know how to do whatever. They can't even uh, get their internet working. You got to come over and set up the internet at their house, right? And they lose, they forget their email password. And you got they got five email accounts. And uh, and the the old guy said, um, "Well, my generation invented all of that. What have, what has your generation done?" We, all that technology is, is our, we, we created all that. We went to the moon. What have you done? And it's, it's a great point. And it, it just illustrates, that idea illustrates the thought of how important it is to respect your elders because they've been a place you haven't been. It's easy to look back on their mistakes and forget the context in which they made them. I grew up in a church that had its heyday in the 60s and 70s. 1.1 million people are ordering uh, cassettes from Bob Thames Ministry in Barack Church. Many people, many different, he said in a tape I heard once. The heyday was an interesting time because it's in the middle of the counterculture movement. It's, a, it's, it's the anti-war movement, the pro, it's very Marxist in its under, underpinnings. And, um, and people are coming to church, but they're, they're trying to be the, the Jesus movement. Remember the Jesus movement? Uh, long hair and a beard, like the, the, the Jesus pictures. And so the hippie thing's going on. And so churches are trying to deal with this culturally. And uh, a lot of churches like, uh, like Chuck Smith are like, yeah, I just let them come in and they'll figure it out. Well, a lot of times they kind of start looking like that, start singing like that, start becoming absorbed into the, the popular culture. Well, the church I grew up in said, no, we're World War II veterans. We didn't suffer all this to have these idiot communists take over. So they went straight, hardcore, anti-communist. Everybody had a crew cut, every whisker shaved, no matter what. There's no, there's no facial hair. And I mean, the pastor was a reservist uh, Air Force officer who gave anti, uh, he, gave, he gave in the middle of the Cold War, he would give for the Air Force talks in various social settings. He would, he would give speeches about communist brainwashing techniques that we learned from the Korean War. And he was a reserve Air Force guy and a pastor, and he was, he was on the right side, and I lived there. 
I, because of where I came from. I'm so grateful for that heritage. But you know, a lot of those people that were flocking to this were in reaction in the culture. They're like, well, we're losing our culture. And this guy's holding forth fast the culture. And in, in as much as that was a way people could get into the word of God and start being about God's work, ding, excellent. But you know, a lot of those people flocked in and flaked off. A lot of it flocked in, it became a fad, and then they flaked away because that's not the spiritual life. We're not here to fight the communists. Communism, Marxism, is a satanic doctrine, and we do need to tell the truth about God's decisions with private property. But that's not our mission. See the difference? And so I love my heritage, and I look back and I say, well, there was a, maybe there was an emphasis at times that people didn't quite understand what we're really doing here. I'm not saying the pastor was wrong. There are lots of people that flat fire, set me on fire if I said that. But we all make mistakes. And my point is, it's easy to look back at people's decisions in the past and forget about the context in which they made those decisions. And that's what's going on in your revisionist time today. All the statues are coming down, all the wicked people. And hey, every human being in history has been a broken, nasty, rotten sinner. The shocker is when you see virtue in these sinners. And it's God. It's God's grace. And so I thank God for my heritage. And I want to consider this great man of God, this great man of faith that we find in Joshua chapter 14, who's an elder man, far past what should be his prime, who is not ready to hang up his spurs. He's not ready for your rocking chair. Verse six, then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua. They're going to parcel out the land um, inheritance rights for the different tribes. So General Joshua, working under the Lord, is in Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me and Kadesh Barnea. Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were the two rangers that came back with a favorable report. God is giving us this great land. We know right where to attack. You, 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 can't, you can't believe the riches that God is giving us based on his promises. And the other 10 rangers came back and they said, oh no, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. There's giants in the land. The sluggard says there's a lion in the yard. There's a lion outside. We can't do it. We, God said to do it, but we can't do it. So we're scared. And then they disobeyed God. They, the, the nation said no. And then God um, put them on a countermarch for 40 years. And all that generation of cowards died in the wilderness and their disobedience to God. Now, what's a Kenizzite? What is a Kenizzite? Well, yeah, these are, these are uh, cousins. These are Edomites. They're people that came from Edom or Esau. And so they're, they're not Israel, but they're relatives. And we think that it's likely that Joshua's dad, a Kenizzite married a Jewish woman. And so he's been absorbed into Israel. He's what we would today think of like a proselyte. But he's one of the, the good ones. Uriah the Hittite is like this. He's a Hittite, but he's one of the great mighty men for King David who idiotically murders him to cover up his, his lust. But that's what, so Caleb is an outsider. His name, do you know what Caleb means? Is Caleb, Caleb's not here. Yeah, Caleb is dog. You knew that, right? one of the great names of the Bible. I'd be careful when John's here. 
Ask him if you know what words mean. <laughs> so you know the story. And he's bringing back up the story that we have in Numbers of Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. God said we could do it. You told us to go in and see where to do it. We found this. We found we, we did our reconnaissance. We brought back our report and the country fell apart. But I brought, I brought back a faithful word. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Now, he's not self-righteous. He's just saying, this is the story. God said, go spy out the land that I'm giving you. We spied out the land. We came back with a report. And it's awesome. God's giving us a great land. Let's attack. There's a bunch of people that live there with a massive uh, group of armies and you have to go defeat those armies, but God's giving you the land. The people looked at the armies and not at the Lord. That's what happened in the Exodus generation. In verse nine, so Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which you, Caleb, your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever because you have followed the Lord, your God fully. Notice the standard. You followed the Lord, your God fully. And so I think what this means, I think what this means is that the part you went and scouted, you get to have. Turns out there are giants there, but you get to have the giants place, the Anakim. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke. So he's like, God fulfilled this promise that we got from Moses, from the Lord sent to Moses. God let me live this whole 40 years with the, all our generation died in the wilderness. Just Caleb and Joshua are left. He's let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I'm 85 years old today. Therefore, grant me that I may sit in thy rocking chair. No, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. When you hear that language going out and coming in, that's leading a troop lead, leading a battle an order of battle. That's what he's talking about. Solomon says, I'm just a little kid, Lord. I don't know what, how to come in and go out. He means, I don't know anything about warfare. I don't know how to do the thing my dad did. And so he asked for wisdom. Well, this is what this means. I I'm ready to go in, go out and come back. Now then give me this hill country. Amen. About which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim, the sons of Anak were there with great fortified cities, perhaps the Lord will be with me and I'll drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So give me the land that God promised, the place where the giants live with their fortified cities. And we think the Anakim are giants and we think there are some of them left by the time a few hundred years later, uh, David meets one of these characters um, in single combat in Ephes Damim described in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the story is that Goliath has brothers and they're all big. So these are, this is the A team. These are the people that you don't want to have to fight. This is the, these are the Super Bowl champions. We don't have to play these guys. We're just little league football players. And, and we're going to have to go up against these giants. And the rest of the people, the rest of the spies said, no way. Joshua's like, let me at them. I'm only 85. So Joshua blessed him and gave him, gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Kiriath Arba. 
was the town, what, what it was called then. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. There's a lot of principles in this. Trust in God, so you obey God. And see, the, 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 the following God fully comes from trusting him, first and foremost. What did he say? I believe it. So I do what he wants because I'm trusting in what he said. Following him fully as I trust him and I obey him. I trust him and I obey him. That's the first thought that you see in this life of Caleb. But the second one is, the second one is that inheritance blessings are available to those that follow him fully. In this story, there are inheritance blessings that come to Caleb. And the reason he gets them is because he followed God fully. Now I'm told that you can't connect the Christian's rewards at the judgment seat of Christ with inheritance, but I don't know why people say that because in Colossians chapter three and verse 24, we're told that there for those slaves that serve God, there is the reward of the inheritance, the reward of the inheritance. In other words, I believe inheritance works this way. Some things that God has laid up for you, he's already given you and you can't lose them like the Holy spirit, Ephesians 1 14, like a resurrection body, first Corinthians 15. These things are settled. You have them. They're God's inheritance gift to you. But some things like Christian rewards for service seem to be in question. Those things in question, like Caleb, by following God fully, he's given for, his gener for all the generations after him of his family, they get to have this place called Hebron. In chapter 15, slipping ahead to verse 13. Now, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, According to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron, all that. Now listen, the city of Arba is the city of Anak's daddy. Anak is the name of the, the father of all the giants, the, this family of, of abnormals, of people that are, and I don't think it's a Nephilim invasion, all that weird stuff, ancient aliens, none of that, none of that. It's just these people are super, super warriors. Some people are really tall and really strong and really fast. And you don't want to fight them if you can help it. Like Goliath. But this is my inheritance. God has given me this portion. Now understand, it's occupied territory. It's given to him by the, he's got to lead an army in to go defeat the people and kick them out. And that's the Joshua conquest. So they give the 85-year-old general and his troops, possibly the hardest foothold in the land, Hebron. Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai, Achiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. And we're supposed to say, huh, what is that? We've read to this point in Joshua, okay, we started in Genesis, we're in Joshua. These are the giants that they were so scared of. Joshua said, no, we could take them. 45 years later, they took them. They won. They did exactly what Joshua said when he said it. Now, what kind of patience is it? What kind of patience is required for Joshua to wait 45 years to do what he said he'd do 45 years ago? He's not bitter. He's following the Lord his God fully. Right? What an incredible testimony this man is. But what, what really captivates me about the life of Caleb is that this is the end of his life. This is the end of his life. It's his last battle. It's the last struggle that General Caleb has to fight. I call it Caleb Christianity because think about this. God saves the toughest stuff for you at the end. 
And I want you, every person with gray hair you ever meet, the grayer, the more critical this is. I want you to think about the battles that we face at the end, toward the end. The loss of children. The hardest thing we ever deal with. Genesis 22, and then the cross of, of Christ, the loss of a child. The worst thing, man, I think the worst experience known to man is, is when we parents lose one of our own. death itself. Those elderly people that you're having to drive slower behind than you might like to, if you only knew what they were dealing with, trying to operate that vehicle, are you going to give them a ride? Are you glad they can still drive without getting in a wreck? Right? Those people that have looked at their lives and like, you know, I don't think I've done everything I really thought I was going to do with this life. And that, that, but they're toward the end anyway. The challenges that come to, at the end of life call for our compassion and our honor. I think Caleb is a great example of this. The greatest battle of his life to fight the giants and rout them out of Hebron, Kiriath Arba, is, at the, is at 85 years old. And the point of the text is making a big deal about how old he is. I'm still just as strong as I was. I got this. First thing in Caleb Christianity, God saves the toughest battles in your life for the end. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Nobody can walk you through dying. You just have to do it by yourself with the Lord. No other human can come alongside you. They, somebody can be holding your hand while you're dying, but the, the loss of this physical estate, this tent, and the transition to the presence of the Lord, only you can, can do that. And the, the older we get, the closer we are to it. And it's the great unknown. And for most people, I want to say the overwhelming majority of people, it's a great cause of fear. And it's in God's timing and it's just, you just have to trust him in the moment. But the biggest battles, before you die physically, your body's going to fall apart, isn't it? For the most part, very few of us are 85 years old saying, yeah, I'm ready to rock like when I was 40. Come on. Very few people can say that at 85. I have a feeling that that manna was good nutrition. They were eating for 40 years in the desert. But, but for the most part, what happens is that we die. If we don't die younger from cancer or something, then we die later from cancer or something. And between getting sick and dying is that last close down. When you really have to say, for me to live is Christ, to die is game. And you really have to say, God, you have your way in my life. I'm just in the moment. You have to keep bringing yourself back to that thought as you could, you could dither into regret. You could drift away into why me? You could, and you have to keep researching, recentering your thinking on who God is and what he's doing. And that this is the end. What I'm contemplating is the end of the very, very, very beginning of my experience of God's glory for eternity forever and ever and ever. And that what I'm going to lose in the, the loss of this body and the, the connection with my fr friends and family is going to be the gaining of being with Jesus Christ. And Paul says as much in Philippians, it's better to be with absent from the body and present with the Lord, but it's a battle and it's a battle of faith. And it's a, it's a huge challenge. 
And it's at the end. It's the last fight you have. Secondly, the longer you walk with the Lord, the stronger you are meant to grow spiritually. You're supposed to be in a growth process. Exposure to him strengthens you, develops you, matures you, raises you. That doddering man who has trouble walking has a better walk with God at this point in his life than you can imagine if he's been walking all this time, if he's grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, if he's developed that hunger and thirst for the pure milk of the word, like a newborn baby after milk. The longer you walk in the Lord, the stronger you grow. So it makes sense that the big battles are at the end. It makes sense that the heavy lift is at the end. The hardships, the, 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 the things that you have to trust him through that the Bible calls momentary light afflictions because this life is short. That are the, the tough stuff. You young people that are having trouble to imagining the end of the, the course, like I can't, I'm sorry. I, statistically, that's 60 years away from me. I can't just imagine what that's like. I remember thinking that and then I blinked my eyes and then we're past half. Be preparing, be preparing for the big battles that are coming. If you're in salad days, if it's comfortable and things are going pretty well, get in the word and get in prayer and be serious about your spiritual life because the challenges are coming. Third, just as Caleb followed the Lord fully, so you and I must walk with him every day. We don't need to say at the end, okay, Lord, I'm gonna start following you fully. You're not ready to fight the giants under those conditions. You need to say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the fight because I've followed him fully all along. And that's, that's the testimony of Caleb, the great warrior for God. And fourth and last, in order to gain our final inheritance, God has some mountains for us to climb and some giants for us to fight. You can't, you can't glorify him in trusting him. You can't do what he wants you to do without going through some of these, some of these battles. And this is the way to think about it. Y'all pray for me. I'll pray for you that you can think about these battles when they come for you, that this is how to think about it. I am trusting in God and I'm going to fight every step of the way to keep my focus on him and to trust in him through this hardship. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Closing moments, we dedicate this morning to those who may be in the hearing of my voice that do not understand eternal life or do not have it because they haven't trusted in Jesus as their savior. If you don't know Christ as your savior, it is really between you and God. It's a matter for you and him. And we want you to know that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross so that you could have eternal life. If you believe that, if you are trusting in him, as your savior, you have the life. If you don't have the son, then you don't have the life. And that's the simple truth. It is a rejection of the love of God toward you to say no to the offer of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the rejection of his love where he sent his son for you to die for your sins. The world attacks this doctrine. It laughs at it. It scoffs and it will laugh its way all the way to the lake of fire. But it doesn't have to be so for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for eternal life, the eternal life uh, that you've given to our loved ones, to our elders, to our parents and grandparents. Thank you for the confidence that we have enjoyed when we've seen one of our loved ones die. 
to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, the comfort we gain in knowing that the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds, and so will we ever be with the Lord. Father, the comfort that we have from knowing what this life is for and where we're going. And Father, it's so easy to lose track of these truths of what we're doing here and what it's for. Don't let us lose track of it. Father, those that are among us who are facing the challenges that age brings on, the battles that Caleb had to fight, and, and metaphorically I mean, but that Caleb moment of having to fight the big stuff at the end. Father, strengthen them, encourage them, help them know that this is how they can glorify you to the maximum as they trust you, as they follow you fully. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.